Uh, as I did mention last week, and uh, I made a decision between Wednesday and Sunday, and I did announce that Sunday, I was about to have mutiny on board if I continued doing Revelation on Wednesday night. And I thought, well, you know what, that's encouraging that that many people, I guess, want to hear it. And so we may come back and do some of the more uh, detailed sections of Revelation on Wednesday night in here. Uh, might be kind of a tough, challenging format to handle some of those things in the depth I want to on a Sunday morning. But uh, we will do Daniel on Wednesday nights, and I think you'll see how the two books fit together. So still, you will get a little icing on the cake from the normal crowd, because you're looking at both of them together and how they fit together and complement uh, one another. As I get started, I do want to uh, do what I did last week, uh, a great commentary to have on the book of Daniel. In fact, one of the, one of the recommended ones I would have you get, if you want to get one, is one by John Walvoord, Daniel, the Key to Prophetic Revelation. Uh, probably his and another, I don't have it with me uh, tonight, uh, uh, Stephen Miller's commentary out of the New American Standard series, the, the NAS series, the New American Standard series, uh, Stephen Miller, his commentary on Daniel. As far as academic commentaries, Stephen Miller's and this one would be the top two that I would recommend. Kind of a notch down on the academic scale, but still a very good one. Uh, uh, surprisingly good. Uh, the Holman commentary on Daniel, written by uh, uh, Kenneth uh, Gangle. So that's another good one to have. Like I say, wouldn't put it on par with Stephen Miller's or this one right here, but uh, some of you in the church I know already have this whole series in your library, and so that, that's another uh, pretty decent one. More popular writing, but it's, it's well done. John Phillips and Jerry Vines, Exploring. Uh, do any of you have the Exploring series? Any of you have this? L LG, do you have that series? Okay. That's, that's decent. That's pretty good. I think you'll enjoy that. Uh, I love uh, this guy's exposition. Along with John MacArthur, as far as just expositions, uh, James Montgomery Boyce's expositions on Scripture are some of my favorite. Now, I wouldn't agree with him on his eschatology. He would be, I'm sure, well, he's passed away now, but he would be an amillennialist. But uh, he was a very sharp fella, pastor of Tenth Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, where uh, Donald Gray Barnhouse was his predecessor. Donald, many of you, if you know anything about preaching and preachers and so forth, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a giant uh, in the preaching world, and he followed Donald Gray Barnhouse at 10th uh, Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Wonderful, academ a scholarly academic pastor. I love his expositions. But anyway, on Daniel, uh, there's that one. Uh, also a very popular one, I know he's popular with a lot of people and, and uh, very good preaching, very good books, David Jeremiah. Does anybody have that one? Okay, you got that one, okay. Handwriting on the wall, 
What chapter does that come from, that title? The, the handwriting on the wall, that, 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 that title comes from what chapter in the book of Daniel? I put you on the spot. From chapter 5. The Mene, Mene, Tekel, Huparsin. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. You remember that? We get to that passage, Daniel 5. Uh, good, uh, good popular reading and uh, you'll, you'll find benefit from that. Uh, surprisingly good, just little kind of outline, I mean more than an outline. Uh, has, it's a good little introduction to the book of Daniel. You can get this at Lifeway. The uh, Shepherd's Notes. Do any of y'all have this series? Very, very thin, and, uh, but, but very good. I think for lay people, uh, you'd, you'd love this. You what? Correct. Correct. Very, very beneficial. I think you would like that this one, and your pocketbook would really like this one. I think I let's see. I just paid five ninety five for this one, so uh, you'd like that. Uh, another one I think popular with lay people. I I, I do have one issue with it, but anyway, uh, uh, do you have any of this, Daniel, for the biblically God's word for the biblically inept? Do you have that? Have you ever seen that before? You ever seen that series? They do a pretty good job. In fact, I was looking through this one. They, they do a good job. I think, I think you will greatly, if you want something light, not so academic or whatever, but good, uh, good nuggets on Revelation, I think that one will be a very popular book with lay people. I really do. Um, I guess my, my problem with it is bibliography. Uh, the people that he says, uh, the experts, his uh, bibliography at the end. Let's see, let me get to it. Oops, must have gone past it. Anyway, he does have a section in here, what the experts say. And uh, his list of experts are uh, very fine men and women. Um, don't, don't have a problem with any of them, but they're... And I don't want this to come across like academic arrogance or something, but uh, they, they would be popular writers and speakers that you might hear on the radio. I'm not sure I would call them experts. You, you see what I'm saying? They're not academic. They're popular writers and speakers and so forth. But, uh, uh, you know, Walvert and Stephen Miller and all, I would call, I'd refer to them more as the experts. So uh, I, I, I think his bibliography in this one is a little weak. But what I've noticed about it as I go through it, pretty good. I think it'll be popular with lay people. So kind of a range, if you want something more academic, Stephen Miller, John Walford, those would be the two more academic ones and some of these later ones that I've mentioned, just kind of more popular reading. Well, let's get into tonight, and this will be the second week in a row I have just given a historical overview of a book, and uh, we will actually get into the preaching and teaching of it next week in chapter 1, but uh, I think sort of to set the table with more of a, an, uh, just an introduction where we sort of set the table can be beneficial. 
And so tonight I just want to do that. I want to lay the groundwork of our study of the book of Daniel and go over the introduction. And I, I know a lot of you are anxious to dive into a study of the book itself. I share your enthusiasm on that, but I really think the book deserves an introduction. And so tonight we're just simply going to go over some background issues. Um, first of all, I want to mention, I've given you 12 items there. First of all, Daniel is truly an exciting book to study as, a, as well as a great prophetic book in the Bible. Uh, most of us have tremendous memories of studying uh, Daniel in either Sunday school or vacation Bible school as a child growing up. And some of our favorite stories in the Bible come from the book of Daniel. What would some of those stories be? What would one of them be, for instance? Daniel in the lion's den, exactly. How about us? There's another real popular one. What, what? Fiery furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. So uh, some of the most popular Bible stories that we learn growing up come from the book of Daniel. John Walford says, Among the great prophetic books of Scripture, none provides a more comprehensive and chronological prophetic view of the broad movement of history than the book of Daniel. And I think you can see the reality of that statement in that little statue chart that I gave you. Uh, Walford goes on to say, Daniel alone reveals the details of God's plan for both the nations and Israel. Number two, Daniel is about the times of the Gentiles and the preservation of the Jewish people. Now, in effect, the book of Daniel is going to give us a glimpse at the prophetic calendar for the world. It outlines for us the kingdoms of this world right up to the second coming of Christ when he establishes his kingdom. His kingdom will be uh, signified in the book of Daniel by that rock, that mountain that comes and smashes all the others to pieces and it's established forever and ever and ever. And so all the world empires from Daniel's point of view, 6th century B.C., from Daniel's point of view, right up until the end of times, the book of Daniel sort of gives that overview for us of the coming world kingdoms. Well, uh, thirdly, I want us to just talk briefly about the placement and the canon. In our English Bibles, Daniel appears as the last of the major prophets, indicating the date when it was written. He wrote after Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, so his book shows up immediately after theirs. But in the Hebrew Bible, uh, which is divided into the, to the law and the prophets and the writings, the writings referring to the wisdom literature like Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, Daniel in the Hebrew Bible is actually included in that section rather than in the prophetic section. Now it's not hard to see why the Jews placed it there because while Daniel is certainly a prophet, even Jesus said so, he was a wise man. He was a seer. He's described in the book as a seer, as a wise man who was a counselor to kings. Uh, that was his official position in Babylon. He was a government official, uh, uh, a counselor to Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and, and others. And he was given prophetic insight. Uh, as opposed to, say, Ezekiel, who would have joined him during that same time in, in exile in Babylon, 
But Ezekiel would have been a prophet to God's people, the Jews there. Whereas Daniel was in a governmental post, an advisor to the Babylonian leaders. And so that's why they put Daniel in the category of the writings versus the prophets. But again, he was a prophet. Jesus said so, and we'll look at that in a moment. Now, you need to know that Daniel has been a very attacked book, probably along with the book of Genesis. Daniel may be the most attacked book in the whole canon of Scripture. Now, the genuineness of Daniel as a 6th century B.C. writing by the prophet Daniel doesn't seem to have been questioned at all in the ancient world until the 3rd century A.D. And at that time, does anybody know the guy's name that came along that started questioning the book of Daniel that even modern critics today fall back to as a source? Anybody know that guy's name? Porphyry. Porphyry was a pagan Neoplatonist, uh, and he attacked the book of Daniel. Now, one time, Porphyry claimed to be a believer. But then there came a time in Porphyry's life, he turned his back on Christianity, and he became a vicious opponent of Christianity. And he wrote 15 books that were sort of bound together in a, in a volume, and it, it was titled against the Christians. And so that kind of tells you where Porphyry stood. Now, Porphyry rejected prophecy. He said that instead of Daniel writing in the 6th century B.C. and prophesying about things that were yet future, instead he wrote in the 2nd century B.C. as a historian. He didn't write as a prophet. He wrote as a historian. And so Porphyry, and by the way, like I say, modern critics have followed uh, his, a lot of his thinking. Uh, Daniel wrote, he said, with deception. He, wanted, he says Daniel wanted people to believe that he was writing about things that had not yet happened when in reality they had. So instead of standing on the front end of the event, and telling what God was saying was going to happen in the future, he said Daniel lived after all those events on the backside of them and was looking back on those events, recording what happened as a historian, but then deceiving his readers, making us think he was a prophet. Now, why would Porphyry, why would modern critics say something like that? Anybody have a guess? Well, Porphyry, as well as a lot of liberal modern critics, they deny the supernatural. They deny miracles, and they deny prophecy. They say God can't, God can't foretell the future. Miracles don't happen. Those are just myths and stories in the Word of God. There's no such thing as miracles. There's no such thing as, as prophecy. And so anytime you come to prophecy in the Word of God, the guy lived after that event, and he's simply a historian recording what everybody already knew from the headlines of the day. 
And again, it's this mindset that comes to the Scripture, uh, an unbelieving mindset that says there can be no such thing as miracles. There can be no such thing as prophecy. Now, folks, let's remember, if you're going to reject prophecy, you're really saying that you don't believe in a sovereign God who can foretell the future. And yet, all through the Bible, what do we see? We see prophecy, don't we? And so if you reject prophecy, not only have you called God's character into question and His ability into question, but you've thrown out much of the Bible altogether. Now, if you say that Daniel was a late-date figure, a 2nd century B.C. man instead of a 6th century B.C. man, then you also have to reject the testimony of Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Daniel's. Ezekiel refers to him. Write down Ezekiel 14, 14, 14, 20, and 28, 3. Ezekiel 14, 14, Ezekiel 14, 20, and Ezekiel 28, 3. Ezekiel writes of Daniel. Again, he was a contemporary of Daniel's. Also was carted away in a deportation, a later deportation deportation but nonetheless same period of time as Daniel now critics also used to claim that Daniel had to be a late date figure because he mentions a man named Ashpenaz whom Daniel calls the master of the king's eunuchs now the critics said here's another mistake for this man Ashpenaz is unknown in history uh, they implied a late Daniel writing a phony book just made him up and yet during the last quarter century the name Ashpenaz was found on a monument in ancient Babylon. The stone is now housed in the British Museum and it says Ashpenaz, master of eunuchs in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So take that, liberal critics. Uh, I think one of the most powerful examples of the critics being silenced has to do with the fifth chapter of Daniel. It says that Belshazzar, king of Babylon, was killed during the feast when Babylon fell to the Medo-Persians. Critics said Nabonidus was the last king of Babylon and he was not present when the city fell. He was not killed, he was taken captive, treated very well and allowed to live out his years as a private citizen. And then Sir Henry Rawlinson came along and discovered an inscription on a cylinder in the Euphrates Valley containing the facts needed to clear up the problem. It pointed out that there were two kings in Babylon during Daniel's later life, a father and a son. Nabonidus, who occupied a stronghold outside the city, made his, eldest, uh, his elder son Belshazzar co-regent and allowed him to also use the royal title. Belshazzar was indeed killed, Nabonidus was spared. Now that bit of information also cleared up another problem in the book of Daniel. Does anybody know what that problem was that this answered that question? Daniel was made the what in the kingdom? No. He was made the third in the kingdom. Aha, now that makes sense because there were already two. There was Nabonidus. And there was Belshazzar. There were already two kings, co-regents. And so that's why Daniel was made not second in the kingdom, but the third in the kingdom. Another case in point where 
archaeological discoveries have helped clear up some of the questions in the Bible. Now, there's other examples showing the accuracy and integrity of the book of Daniel, but I, I think that suffices. You get the point. Now, incidentally, the Lord Jesus accepted and affirmed the book of Daniel and that Daniel was a prophet. In the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, 15, he refers to Daniel the prophet and the abomination that causes desolation. Now, if there's any doubt in our minds about the existence of Daniel being a 6th century B.C. prophet um, who recorded the events he did in a book named after him, I would think the Lord Jesus affirming it would be enough to clear up any doubt. Amen? Well, the author. Several verses indicate that the writer is Daniel. Uh, let me give you some of those verses. Verse, chapter 8, verse 15. Chapter 8, verse 27. Chapter 9, verse 2. Chapter 10, verse 2. Chapter 10, verse 7. And chapter 12, verses 4 to 5. The name Daniel means God is my judge. Now he wrote in the autobiographical first person from chapter 7, verse 2 on. He wrote in the autobiographical first person from chapter 7, verse 2, following. Now, as a teenager, we're going to see next week as we open up chapter 1, in all probability, when Daniel and his friends were taken captive, they were young teenage boys, probably somewhere between the ages of 13 and 15, maybe as old as 16, but young to middle-aged teenage boys. Uh, he was kidnapped from his family, his family of nobility. And uh, he was deported to Babylon to be brainwashed into Babylonian culture for the task of dealing with the imported Jews. Now, this was one of the foreign policies that the Babylonians had. When the Assyrians went into an area, so oftentimes they would just wipe out the population. But the Babylonians would kidnap the cream of the crop, the brightest of the bright among the young people and the children of the nobility. And they would carry them back to Babylon and they would indoctrinate them in Babylonian ways and try to make Babylonian disciples out of them so that they could help the Babylonian officials rule their own peoples. And then also by kidnapping some of the brightest of the bright, the uh, children of the nobility, what else would this do? It's squashing an uprising. They would have a bargaining chip. If, if the people wanted to get out of hand, they could just kill the, the young people, the youth. So they would use them as sort of a bargaining chip to keep the people uh, in check who they had brought in and, and made captives in their, their land. They would use their kids. You know, you behave and be good citizens of, of uh, Babylon. If you don't, we'll take the lives of your children. And so a twofold purpose, a bargaining chip, 
and also to train up the young people to indoctrinate them in that new culture so they could help the Babylonian officials rule their own people. So a twofold purpose. Now Daniel spent the remainder of his life. It's believed that he probably lived up easily to 80, 85 minimum, maybe into his early 90s. He spent the rest of his life as a captive in Babylon. But you'll notice that Daniel made the best of the exile. He exalted God by his character and his service. He quickly rose to the role of statesman by official royal appointment and served as an advisor and confidant of kings in two world empires, the Babylonian Empire and the Medo-Persian Empire. So not only did the Babylonian leaders recognize Daniel's character and ability, but the next kingdom to come along, the Medo-Persians who, took, who overran the Babylonians, they too recognized Daniel's wisdom and ability. Says something about Daniel, doesn't it? Now, Daniel may have lived on until about 530 B.C., and scholars believe he wrote the book of Daniel probably in the last decade of his life. He's also alluded to by the writer of Hebrews as one of the prophets who through faith stopped the mouths of lions. Hebrews 11, 32, and 33. Now, one striking thing about Daniel, though, in Daniel 6.10 he never forgot his God or his home. Amen? He never forgot his God or his home. Now, the, the theological theme of the book of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. Let's look for a minute over at chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Excuse me, 21. Chapter 5, verse 21. Talking about what was going on here. He was driven from among the children of mankind. His mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. God is sovereign. Look back at chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Chapter 2, 20 to 22. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to, the, uh, to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. And then over in verse 44, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So God is sovereign over all earthly kingdoms. One day he's going to establish his kingdom. And so throughout the book of Daniel, we're going to see that Daniel's vision, or the visions that he interprets, shows that the victory belongs to God. 
God's sovereign, regardless of how the world scene looks at any given time, regardless of who is in charge, regardless of what is happening in the world, regardless of how even if God's people are going through trial and tribulation and suffering, God is still on His throne. He's in charge. And the victory is His. And that's really the theological point of the book of Daniel. Daniel is not so much a book about Daniel as Daniel is a book about God. And we need to keep that in mind. And it's the same thing I said as we study through the book of Revelation. As all those seals are being broken and those bowls of wrath being poured out and those trumpet blasts are being blown and with each of those things, tribulation is coming on the face of the earth like waves crashing on the, the, the sands of the shore one wave after another. In the midst of all that detail in the book of Revelation, who do we need to see? Jesus. Same thought with the book of Daniel, okay? Same thought. Well, that verse I just read, verse 44, shows the climax of God's sovereignty. That all the kingdoms of this world will eventually be put down one day and God's kingdom will be established forever and ever and ever. Revelation eleven fifteen speaks of the very same thing. Now the seventh thing I want you to notice with me is the two sections of the book. The book divides very nicely into two main sections. It's a combination of historical narrative in the first six chapters and then prophetic and apocalyptic material found mainly in chapters 7 to 12. Somebody said it this way, chapters 1 to 6 show us Daniel revealing God's secrets to the kings, while chapters 7 to 12 show us the angels revealing God's secrets to Daniel. Now chapters 7 to 12 are considered apocalyptic. Apocalyptic material is defined as being material that is symbolic, visionary, and prophetic in character. It was usually composed during oppressive conditions and being chiefly eschatological in theological content. What's eschatology referred to? End time things. Okay? It most often was of great encouragement to the people of God showing that God is still in control. Now the language of the book, the, the really unusual thing or unique thing I should say about the book of Daniel is it's written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. The central portion of the book beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2 and going all the way up through verse 28 of chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. Now that's appropriate for this section describes the course of Gentile world history. And Aramaic was the contemporary language of international business among the Gentiles. And so Daniel was writing about Gentile history in a language that Gentiles could understand. Very appropriate. Now the setting. The book of Daniel begins in 605 B.C. when the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and exiled Daniel, his three friends, as well as others. 
605 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar came in late in 606, but got word back home his dad had died, and so he took off, went back home, then came back in 605 and finished that first invasion and deportation. Now, we know from Jeremiah, from Jeremiah 25, 8 to 14, that the exile was to last 70 years. Now, after Daniel was transported to Babylon, the Babylonian victors conquered Jerusalem in two further stages. 597 B.C., when Ezekiel was captured. And then finally, in 586 B.C., when they came in, wiped out the temple, the walls around the city, just completely destroyed everything. So three different waves of destruction that Nebuchadnezzar did against Jerusalem and Judah. Now, the book continues to record Daniel and Babylon during this 70 years, all the way down to the eventual demise of the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. Now, at that point, Medo-Persian conquerors defeated Babylon. That's described, that's going to be described in chapter 5, verses 30 to 31, and in Daniel 10, 1. And guess what, folks? When the Medo-Persians come in and defeat the Babylonians, who's still there? Daniel's still there. Now the date in chapter 10 verse 1 would be uh, 536 B.C. Now it's important to realize that the reason Daniel and the Jews are in Babylon is because of the judgment of God. Look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So why? Why are they taken away to Babylon? God allowed it, right? It was judgment on the land. Now, one of the reasons... Exactly. And, and idols, exactly. Idolatry. And by the way, Jehoiakim, does anybody remember what Jehoiakim did? Does anybody remember a very significant event, a bad thing that Jehoiakim did? would certainly show you what Jehoiakim thought of this right here. Does anybody remember what he did? Anybody got a pocket knife on him? You got one? You remember what he did, right? When Jeremiah, when, he, when, when there was that scroll of the Word of God produced, he took his pen knife out. I'm not going to do it. But. <laughs> Jehoiakim is the one who sliced, sliced up the Word of God. So here was a ruler of Judah. That shows you what, he, that shows you what kind of leadership he had or didn't have what he thought of the Word of God. 
and they were idolaters. Their sisters, the northern kingdom, had been destroyed in 722 by the Assyrians, the twelve northern tribes. As the prophet said, Judah should have learned from the example of her sister. But she didn't learn from the bad example of Israel. Israel, the northern kingdom, was caught up in idolatry. God judged them. God destroyed them at, at the hands of the Assyrians. They were carted off. The ten northern tribes never really to factor into Old, Old Testament history ever again. You would think the two southern tribes that made up Judah would have taken a lesson. But they didn't. From 722 B.C., the destruction of the northern kingdom, down to 605 B.C., they hadn't learned one bit. They continued in the same type of idolatry that their northern kinfolks had done. And so God destroyed them too. <clears throat> and so God allowed this because of the sin of His people. Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, among others, had warned the people time and time again this was going to happen if they didn't repent. Now, as Claude mentioned, one sin of which they continued in was not giving the land rest. Every seventh year, they were to give the land rest. They didn't do this. So the 70 years in exile, guess what? God was reclaiming the sabbatical rest on the land. Now let's think about purposes in the book. <clears throat> We're going to see, first of all, God's not forgotten His people. He's chastening His people. But like you said in Jeremiah 29, 11, His plans for them were good. I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He was chastening them. He was disciplining them but it was for their ultimate good. Another purpose is to show that while their circumstances may be difficult, God's still with them, He's working in them, He's not through with them. And then a third big purpose in the book, as I've already alluded to, in Babylon, Daniel received God's word concerning successive stages of Gentile world domination. The times of the Gentiles will continue through the centuries until the greatest conqueror, the Messiah, will put down all Gentile rule. He'll then defeat all his foes and raise his covenant people to blessing in his glorious millennial kingdom. And so in a most comprehensive way, God was giving his people a prophetic map of human history. Right now, we're still in the times of the Gentiles. And at the end of the times of the Gentiles, Romans 11 says, Paul's, uh, Paul, Paul says that God's going to do something to stir the Jew to jealousy and a complete number of Israel is going to be saved. And the natural olive branch is going to be grafted back into the olive tree. We're the wild thing that's been grafted in. If he's grafted in the wild thing, he can surely take the natural branch and graft it back in. And he'll do that at the end of the times of the Gentiles. 
before he establishes his millennial kingdom. Now, some key themes of the book. <clears throat> Number one, it's possible to live a faithful life in exile surrounded by pagan influences and propaganda if one sets one's mind to serving the Lord wholeheartedly. Boy, what a lesson for us today. Is this an ugly world we live in? Full of sin and demonic activity? You better believe it. But can the Christian stand firm for the Lord? Yes, we can. And, and Daniel is a testimony to that. Second lesson, or a key theme, God can vindicate His faithful servants in front of pagan rulers by giving them unusual wisdom and insight into divine mysteries and by miraculously protecting them against uh, the, the enmity of their pagan neighbors. Nevertheless, divine rescue from martyrdom cannot be assumed. Daniel saved. Not all believers are saved, right? We'll see in the book of Revelation, there are martyrs that come through the, the tribulation. And there are those souls under the altar crying out, How long, O God, before you vindicate us? Before you vindicate our blood and before you take vengeance on your enemies. And God says, hang on, I know y'all are there. Just be patient and wait. I'm going to deal with it all. Just because we're believers doesn't mean everybody's going to be saved. Some are. Daniel was. A third lesson or key theme, God humbles the proud and raises up the humble. Even the hearts of the greatest kings are under his control. We'll see in chapter 4 how he put down King Nebuchadnezzar until Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and then God elevated him once again. Fourth key, key theme, this world will be a place of torment and persecution for the saints until the end, getting worse and worse rather than better and better. Yet the Lord will judge the kingdoms of this world and bring them to an end, replacing them with His own kingdom that will never end. This kingdom will be ruled by one like a son of man who comes with the clouds, a figure who combines the distinctive traits of humanity and divinity. Of course, that's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Fifth key theme, God is sovereign over the course of history, even over those who rebel against Him and seek to destroy His people. We also see that in what other Old Testament book? Esther, exactly. Haman tried to destroy the Jews. Guess what? He himself was destroyed instead. A sixth key point. The exile was not the end of Israel's history of rebellion and judgment. In the future, Israel would again transgress against the Lord. Jerusalem would be handed over into the power of her enemies who would trample her temple and do uh, abominable things. Eventually, though, the anointed ruler would come to deliver her from her sins. Seventh, these earthly events are mirrors of a great cosmic conflict in the heavenly realms between angelic forces of good and evil. Prayer is a significant weapon in that conflict. We're going to see that in the book of Daniel. That behind what we see here on this earth, there's a spiritual warfare going on as well. Demonic powers 
as well as angelic forces. There, there's a spiritual realm going on beyond what we're able to see with our eyes. Eighth, God rules over all these conflicts and events. He limits their scope and He has a precise timetable for the trials of the saints to be completed when He'll finally intervene to cleanse and deliver His people. Ninth, in the meantime, the saints must be patient and faithful amid a hostile world looking to the Lord alone for deliverance. Now folks, what are some reasons for studying the book of Daniel? Well, first of all, simply because it's a part of the inspired Word of God. It's one of the books in the canon of Scripture of 66 books. We really don't need any other reason than that right there to study it. It's part of the Word of God. But secondly, to understand how God's working in human history. When we read about the rise and fall of nations and kingdoms, we should understand that history's not out of control. Folks, as we look at world events in our own time, the response of Christians, we shouldn't go home every night, click on the news and be wringing our hands. Oh, boy. oh I'm just worried sick. What's going to happen next? Guess what? God's in control. Third, we can learn much from the life of Daniel himself. He had to endure a lot of heartache and trials, but he committed his life to God. And because of that, God allowed and even caused Daniel to prosper. Now let me wrap this up with a, a, state, a summary statement by John Walvert. I quote here, John Walford says, In many respects, the book of Daniel is the most comprehensive prophetic revelation of the Old Testament, giving the only total view of world history from Babylon to the second advent of Christ and interrelating Gentile history and prophecy with that which concerns Israel. Daniel provides the key to the overall interpretation of prophecy, is a major element in premillennialism and is essential to the interpretation of the book of Revelation. Its revelation of the sovereignty and power of God has brought assurance to Jew and Gentile alike that God will fulfill His sovereign purposes in time and eternity. End of quote. Now next week as we begin to study chapter 1, remember that opens up the beginning of that historical section, historical narrative in the book of Daniel. Now within that we'll see some apocalyptic things and prophetic things, but overall the first six chapters are historical narrative. And then batten down the hatches for when we come to chapter 7. Because the book of Daniel is going to get wild and woolly. And you're going to be saying, what's that mean? What's that refer to? Okay? And that will be the more uh, apocalyptic section there. But you're going to see how uh, applicable the book of Daniel is to our current day and age. And how the book of Daniel actually helps answer some questions of things that are going on right now. And you're going to see how the book of Daniel is really a, a nice companion volume 
to the book of Revelation. Sure, we can do that. Sure, right. And we'll let Mark answer those questions. We'll just, whatever questions we have, Mark can answer those. You, you reckon? <laughs> sure, we can do that. We can take some time for, for questions of Sunday material. Okay. Okay. Take your prayer guide. Any comments before we go into our prayer time and close? I would highly encourage you to get Walford's commentary and Stephen Miller's commentary. I think if you got those two, it'd be very beneficial. If you want something lighter, I understand, get, maybe get the Holman, the, the, the Brown commentary series I gave you. Any of these, uh, you're welcome to come up and look at these afterwards. Again, just don't take my books. How many of them here? Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I've got seven up here. I'm going to count them after you leave. It's a study Bible, just like there's the NIV study Bible, the NAS study Bible, the English Standard Version study Bible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's an excellent study Bible, excellent. Well, like all modern translations, it's eclectic. It takes advantage of uh, uh, Caesarean, Western, Syrian, or Byzantine, and Alexandria. Alexandrian manuscript family, the main manuscript families, it looks at all of them. I know you're a King James man, that mainly deals with one text family, the Syrian or Byzantine text family, most modern translations, a lot of textual, 5,000 extant available manuscripts uh, that we have now, a lot of discoveries since 1611. King James has been through a lot of revisions. It always tickles me to look at some of these church signs you ride through towns. We use only the 1611 KJV. No, you don't, because if you had a 1611 KJV, you couldn't read it. I can assure you, you could not read it. So even it's gone through translations and revisions, but just about all modern translations take advantage of all, all the major text families. And I know that just... Boy, you like that King James, but anyway. And it's, it's a good... good. You can read the Middle English. You sure you have the original 1611? I want you to bring that to I want you to bring that to me, and I want to see you read it. Cause, okay, I want, to, I want to see that. You what? Hmm. Yeah. You, the, the original... Most, most people can't read the, the, the old Middle English. But, but, yeah. The literal translations to the, the New American Standard, uh, the, the King James, the New King James, the New American Standard, uh, the ESV, uh, the RSV and the NRSV, all of those would be in the literal the NIV would be considered more what's referred to as the dynamic equivalent, the NLT, dynamic equivalent, where they try to put things in 
phraseology of today. It's not necessarily a word-for-word -word translation, but... Uh, what, what you can do, you can, get, you can actually get different translations of the Bible, and essentially that's, they're, they're kind of like commentaries on the Scripture because you can look at each translation and see how those translators handled those words out of the original languages, how they interpreted those words. And it's, it's quite insightful sometimes to see how the different translators translated those words, and that in and, in and of itself can... Kind of be a commentary. Yes, he makes he makes that reference, he makes but it's not. It's what. Referring to the fact that they're under judgment. I'm disciplining my people. Look at what your people have done. I mean, it's not a denial that they're God's people, but it's just that they're under judgment. Okay? Yes. The mene, mene, tekel, who parson. You've been weighed in the balances and found lacking or wanting. In some of the... Well, the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. Sure, that would have been written in Greek. Well, that that's the that's the text that the the Syrian or Byzantine, uh, also the text is Receptus. Uh, that was what the King James is based on. The manuscripts they were based on. But in the Old Testament, you had like the Masoretic text. And then the Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which also was really the Bible of the Apostles, was the Septuagint. Oh, well. Well, the, the Jews started learning uh, other languages. Uh, Well, they use they use they still use the Hebrew in formal settings. Beyond beyond that, just official addresses. But any any formal type communication among the Jews would oftentimes still be done in the Hebrew. Uh, 